Uh, with that, we are looking at our second to final message on rebuilding. This is actually the eighth week in the series. And I look back, I could be mistaken on this, but I'm pretty sure that for the preceding seven weeks, I have not yet used any sports metaphors, which is a challenge for me because I, I do like sports. Well, while there's much applause, I'm here to tell you the streak ends today. The streak ends today. I'm actually pretty amazed that I've gotten this far. I mean, I might have mentioned sports one or twice, but there haven't been any big sports-related Sundays so far. And I'm pretty, pretty surprised at that because the term rebuilding has a very specific connotation in sports. It's, it's something that all sports uh, and all team sports in particular have, have reference to. And, and I do want to begin today by talking about that. If you're not a sports fan, let me, let me explain this here. What happens in team sports is that when a team over the course of two or three or four seasons has been eh, good, but not good enough to actually compete for the championship. You know what I'm saying? Good, but not good enough. And it's been that way multiple seasons in a row. And the management is looking at the team and they're saying, we've maximized all our assets. We don't really have any up and comers. We don't really have a foreseeable way why we're gonna be any better next year than we were last year. We've maximized our talent and it wasn't good enough. When management sees that, very often they make the decision to go into what we call a rebuilding period. And when teams go into a rebuilding period, here's what that means. They're gonna sell off all of their talent, all of their assets in talent, and they're gonna start over. They're gonna literally rebuild their team. And what happens then is that any players on that team of any you know, any talent, anybody that might be useful to somebody else gets traded away in return for draft picks or for young minor league prospects or players that might have a future, might have a potential. Um, expensive assets, players that are just making too much money get released so that the management can say, we're gonna save that money for a while so that later on we can spend it on a more expensive free agent. Minor league players in a rebuilding season get promoted maybe a little bit too early. They get promoted so that they can get some experience at the big league level, but they're usually not actually good enough to compete at the big league level. They just kind of take their lumps for a while. The Bulls tried this after Michael Jordan retired the second time. It didn't work. We were just bad. We never got any better. We were just bad. The Cubs did this successfully about 10 years ago. They started just selling off assets and they accumulated draft picks and young prospects and then they ultimately won a World Series. It worked for them. Rebuilding worked for them. The White Sox have been doing this the last few years and it appears that it's working for them. The White Sox are gonna be a phenomenal team this year, a great team of young, talented players. And there's a lot of fans that really, really wished the Bears would have done it this year because the Bears have been mediocre, one mediocre season after another. And there's a lot of fans that were saying, just blow it up and rebuild. But the management apparently sees something that most of us can't. And so they're gonna run it back out again. Rebuilding, most sports teams go through the decisions. They don't like to call it rebuilding. They'll say, well, we're just reloading or we're retooling, but we fans know what they're really doing. They're rebuilding. 
The problem with being a sports fan and going into a period of rebuilding means that for a while, maybe for a good long while, for many seasons in a row, your team is going to look worse. Good players are going to get traded away. The guys whose jerseys you bought and cheered for are going to end up playing on other teams. Veterans that you love to cheer for are going to get released. And for a few seasons, you are going to lose a whole lot of games because you just don't have the talent to compete with most of your opponents. The challenge for fans in a time when their favorite team is rebuilding is the fans need to maintain what we're talking about today, which is a vision for the future. That's the challenge for a fan of a rebuilding team. That fan, if they're gonna survive those lean years, needs to have a vision for the future because when you're in the midst of a losing season, it probably feels like it's not worth it. You start to feel like, you know, what we're building here can't possibly be better than what we used to have because at least when we were mediocre, at least we won a few games. Maybe we even got, you know, into the playoffs and then got bounced in the first round, but at least we got into the playoffs. This can't possibly be better than that. A rebuilder who doesn't have a vision for the future begins to long for the mediocrity of the past. And the rebuilders in Jerusalem went through a few experiences with exactly that kind of struggle. So I want to show you their pictures again. You've seen this picture every day. You know how much I love this picture. These are the six rebuilders whose stories we've been telling. And today we're going to focus on a couple of events that involve the first four, the four on the left. Going from left to right, we have Zerubbabel, who was the governor during the first rebuilding stage. We have Joshua, who was the high priest. And then next to him, we have Haggai, the prophet. And over Haggai's shoulder, we have Zechariah, the prophet. The two of them were in encouraging the rebuilders with the word of God. Now, by this point, having heard seven sermons about rebuilders, I hope that you can remember that Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest, they were the first two rebuilders on the scene. The picture is in chronological order. Zerubbabel and Joshua, you might recall, made the choice when they arrived, they had to prioritize. What are we going to do first? And they made the choice to rebuild the altar first. So they rebuilt the altar, which was part of the temple. They didn't rebuild the temple, so there was no building for the altar yet, but they chose to rebuild the altar first, and they were successful at that. Then they said, okay, now that the altar is up and worship can happen, let's begin to actually rebuild the temple, the building and facility that would surround the altar. And so they did that. They cleared the rubble and they began to lay the foundation. And once the foundation for the new temple was set, they stopped and they paused with all the rebuilders to celebrate. And Ezra, who is not part of this story yet at this time, but he was the historian, Ezra records that celebration. Once the, the foundation of the new temple had been laid, Ezra tells us about that Celebration. I'm going to read to you from Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. And this is, uh, it can be on the screen for you. Uh, Ezra records that all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Well, many others shouted for joy. 
And no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard very far away, Ezra says. So let's kind of describe this for you. I want you to be able to understand this scene because this is very emblematic of what we're talking about today. We have this massive crowd and they've come together to celebrate just the laying of the foundation of the new temple. And we have a good portion of the crowd, Ezra says, for the most part, the younger part of the crowd, cheering and celebrating. These guys have never seen a temple before. So they, not a temple to Yahweh. So they, they, they see the foundation and they're excited. We're finally gonna have what our grandparents used to talk about. We're finally gonna have that. And they're cheering and celebrating. But then there's a portion of, of the older segment of the population who is old enough to have remembered the former temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And they have these memories of the past. And when they see the foundation of what's new, they begin weeping because they see the foundation of that temple and they're thinking this new temple could not possibly compete with our memories of the majestic old temple from, from our childhood. And so half the crowd is cheering, half the crowd is weeping. It's kind of like going to a Bears game, actually. You know, like the younger crowd is going, this is cool, this is cool, Khalil Mack. And, and us older folks are going, let me tell you a little story about 1985. <laughs> this isn't anything like what it used to be. This isn't anything like what it used to be. Actually, Ezra tells us elsewhere, there were about 50,000 people that were part of this first wave of rebuilders. To put that into context, Wrigley Field holds 40,000 fans. So this is more people cheering and weeping and making the, can you, you, the noise of that. This is more than would fit into Wrigley. Wrigley fits about 40,000. Nobody knows who many, how many people fit into guaranteed rate field where the Sox play because they never sell all their tickets. Boom! <laughs> get it out, get it out. <laughs> but you have these tens of thousands of people and they're just making all this noise and, and people from all around are hearing it but they can't tell the difference. They just, it's a racket but we don't know what's really going on. And this, I think, is just a great reminder to us that new beginnings can feel bittersweet. Bittersweet. We've talked a lot about the kinds of things that you might be rebuilding. Your faith, your habits, your relationships. Together, we're rebuilding our church, rebuilding some ministries, rebuilding our witness to the community. Whatever it is that rebuilding means to you, however you're thinking about rebuilding these days, it's likely that there will come a point when you see the foundation of the new structure for the very first time. And that moment is, is exciting because it represents the first measurable steps in your effort to rebuild. But maybe part of you is going to want to mourn the loss of what you used to have. We already talked about how rebuilding involves sacrifice, remember? And, and maybe seeing that foundation for the first time is a very visible reminder of what we've sacrificed to rebuild. It can be bittersweet. And it's in those moments that successful rebuilders will need to focus on a God-inspired vision for the future. Unfortunately, it seems that the rebuilders in Jerusalem in our story lacked 
in that area, at least in this moment. Let me remind you, you've heard this part of the story many times before. This was the moment when they kind of gave up and kind of stopped. And the rebuilding just ceased for about 15 years. Nothing of significance was rebuilt. And we've talked many times about that period. There's multiple reasons why that happened. The rebuilders got kind of comfortable. They shift focus and started building their own homes instead of rebuilding the temple. There were opponents and there was opposition, political and, and the threat even of military action. And so there was fear. All of those things are true. But also, in addition to those things, it seems that they just plain old lost their vision. They just lost their vision for what the rebuilding of Jerusalem should have become. Enter Haggai, right? Enter Haggai. This is the moment when we first hear from Haggai, and he speaks to this bittersweet nature of rebuilding. I'm going to read to you from Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Haggai is speaking on the Lord's behalf here. He says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Now, that's not a rhetorical question. He's saying, who's, who's left that can remember the old temple? And by this point, we can presume that that, that generation is dwindling. It's a relatively small segment of the 50,000 or so that are there. Because it's been a long, long time. So Haggai says, who here can remember? Who here can remember the blue chairs in the sanctuary at HRCC? Right? Who here can remember when the name of this church was Suburban Assembly of God? Who here can remember that? There we go. Who here can remember when this congregation met in the little white brick building on Fairview Avenue in Downers Grove? She's currently at home. Okay, Cindy Rogers, watching us online. How are you doing, Cindy? Good to see you. Glad you're there. Thanks, Sherry. Okay, it's a dwindling segment of the population. Haggai says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And you're like, thank you very little, Haggai, for the encouragement. But listen to what Haggai says. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, you high priest. And be strong, all you people of the Lord, of the land, excuse me, declares the Lord. Be strong and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Haggai gets right to the heart of the matter here, doesn't he? The new temple looks small, too small, uncomfortably small. But Haggai says there's a lesson in that. God is with us in the small things. We think of God as being a God of the big things. Like if it's got to be a God thing, it's got to be big. It's got to be majestic. It's got to be huge. And Haggai says, hold your horses on that a little bit. I think God has a word for his people now. God says, yeah, it looks pretty small, doesn't it? But be strong and work because I'm with you. God is with us in the small things. Did you ever try to put something together? And you kind of assemble all the pieces that you're going to need and you look at it and you think, this isn't going to be big enough. You ever try and do something and think, well, this is not going to be significant enough to affect change. This isn't going to matter. This winter, the Martinsons decided that we wanted to find a chili recipe. We aren't really chili eaters. But, you know, there was a lot of chili weather this winter, was there not? 
And so we decided that we wanted to find a chili recipe. Now, it's good to be the pastor of a church that pre-COVID had an annual chili cook-off because we had discovered a particular recipe of chili that we actually kind of liked the taste of. And so I called one of the members of this church and says, hey, we would like to borrow your chili recipe. Now, most people don't share their chili recipes, amen? But it's good to be the pastor, <laughs> right? And so this person under threat of death, if I ever revealed their identity, said, I will share the recipe, but only with you. And so we got the recipe. And Sue did the grocery shopping and she got all the ingredients for the chili, but I was gonna be the one to cook the chili. And, <coughs> excuse me, we assembled all the ingredients and I said to Sue, you know, it doesn't look like enough. We're a family of four, chili should have leftovers, shouldn't it? Like it's not really chili if there's not leftovers. We need more than this. I said, I think I'm gonna double the recipe. And Sue said, don't double the recipe. We don't even know if we all like it, for starters. We're just trying this thing once. Don't, I said, no, I think I'm gonna double the recipe. She said, you're not doubling the recipe. I'm nothing if not obedient, so I didn't double the recipe. I took you know, the meat and the beans and the other ingredients, which will remain a secret, and I combined them. And it was like that story in the Old Testament where the widow pours out the oil and it just keeps on coming out. It's just this chili multiplied. There were loaves and fishes and chili all over the place. We were eating chili for a week. I mean, there was more than enough chili, but in looking at it, I was of the perspective, could this possibly be enough? Could this possibly be the right amount? Rebuilders sometimes face the same challenges. At the beginning of a project, we wonder, do we have enough to see it through? Is what we have gonna be sufficient? Can we really affect change with, with what little we can see right now? It, it, with what little we can do right now? What we're really asking ourselves is, is the new building really gonna be better than the old? Or should we just give up and embrace the status quo? Wouldn't that be better? Should we just give up and embrace the status quo. But listen to what Haggai is saying here. Listen to his prophecy. He is saying, God is with us even when the project seems too small. Maybe you're trying to rebuild your physical health, as some of you have told me about. Maybe you're trying to rebuild an element in your spiritual health. Maybe there's a relationship that you're working on or a habit that you're trying to address. And there's changes that, that you know you should be making, but they feel like they're, they're just little, it's too small. Like, really just make a phone call? Is that really what I'm supposed to do? Hey, God is, in, is with you in that phone call. You know, hey, just, just, just change this pattern that I'm doing. Just do this one thing a little bit. Hey, God is with you in those small things. Rebuilders that have a vision for the future aren't afraid of doing the little things because they recognize God is with you in those small things. Listen again to what Haggai says. He says, be strong and work, right? I so want to preach those two words, the and work, but I'm not going to preach those today. I'm just going to say them and tell you that I wanted to preach them, but I'm not really going to preach them. So you can just hear, be strong and work, like just do it. God's selling Nike here, right? Just do it. Just do it because I'm with you. I'm with you in the small things, declares 
the Lord Almighty. But Haggai's, he, he's not done yet. We know Haggai better than that. The, the brother's never done, right? He's not done yet. So listen to what he says next, picking up in verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And the glory of this present house, in other words, the one that you're just looking at a foundation of right now, the one you're building, the glory of this present house will be greater than the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God is speaking prophetically through Haggai. He's giving the people a great big old spoiler alert here, right? He's giving them a spoiler alert. He is saying, this temple may not look like much now, but I am going to do greater things in this temple than I ever did in the old temple. I am going to do greater things in this shabby little temple for which you can only see the foundation than I ever did in that old temple you've been talking about for generations. He says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Let me give you a little background information here. The first temple, we call it Solomon's temple. It was built by old King Solomon generations and generations and generations ago. And all of the rebuilders knew the story of that. When the first temple was completed, they had a big celebration and a worship service where they were going to dedicate the temple. You could read about that back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In the celebration and the dedication of the original temple, everybody there saw miraculous fire from heaven come down and consume the offerings on the altar. It was, there were supernatural manifestations of the power and the presence of God. They could see what they could only describe as God's presence come from heaven and take up residence in the temple. And they said it was so thick, the glory of God was so thick in the temple that day that the priests that were supposed to go in to kind of open it up for the grand opening couldn't go in. They're like, we can't get in, God's in there. Okay, we can't go, we can't go. You can't see anything, you can't move. The presence of God was thick and palpable. That's what happened when the glory, I will fill this house with my glory. All of these rebuilders are like, you mean like you did on the day they dedicated Solomon's temple? And God's like, well, no, actually not. Because now skipping ahead, when this temple does get finished, the rebuilt one, they have a celebration, and it's a good celebration. Maybe somebody brought chili. I don't know. They had a good celebration. They had a worship service, but there was no fire from heaven, and there was no cloud of God's glory, and there was no presence that prohibited the priests from coming in. And they just had a good celebration. But all of those miracles that they had heard about from the past, from the old temple, that never happened in the new temple. But here we have God saying, oh, I'm going to fill this place with my glory. And these guys are going, they're scratching their heads going, 
I don't know. I don't see it. But you know what happened 500 years later? 500 years later, a man by the name of Jesus from Nazareth walked into the courts of that temple that they were rebuilding. He's the one that Haggai is referring to when he says the desired of all nations. The one that the whole world has been waiting for is going to come into this place. And God is saying in this moment through Haggai's anointed words, he's saying, I am going to fill this place with my glory in a way that you Zerubbabel could never even imagine. In a way that you Joshua could never even conceive of. And all the other rebuilders, you can't even imagine the way I am going to fill this place with my presence and my glory. It is going to make Solomon wish he was here to see it because he ain't got nothing on this place. Don't think it's not worth it. It looks too small and lose the vision. Here's the point I want to make. God knows what's really worthwhile. He knows what's really worthwhile. And in God's economy, Value is always determined by content, not appearance. He's saying, I know the temple looks small, but guess what? I am going to fill it with a glory you could not possibly imagine. And in God's economy, value is always determined by content, not appearance. Do you remember what God said when he anointed that, that little teenage boy, David, to become the king of his people, the promised anointed king, and everybody was like, David? He's kind of the runt of the litter, and he smells like sheep poop, right? And, and, and God said, no, 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 but you don't understand. I'm not worried about his appearance. I'm enraptured by the content of his character. The content of his character. It's what's inside that matters in God's economy. One of the reasons that the rebuilders might not have been feeling quite too hot about the new temple is that there wasn't nearly as much silver and gold as they knew Solomon had. I mean, they had a lot of silver and gold, but not nearly as much as good old Solomon had. Did you catch the reference to silver and gold in Haggai's prophecy? Haggai's like, um, by the way, God's like, the silver and the gold are mine anyhow. You're not likely to impress me by getting a whole lot of silver and gold, because guess what? I own it all, right? The silver is mine and the gold is mine. In other words, if you're comparing this temple to the adornments that you remember from the past, God is saying, I am not interested in that stuff because I already own it all anyhow. I'm challenging you to have a God-sized vision for the future. And so will you open your eyes to what I want to do in this place, in this place. God knows what's really worthwhile. Haggai wasn't the only one trying to help the rebuilders get a, a vision for the future. We're going to shift gears here to Zechariah, who's just a few weeks behind Haggai. Like he's right behind Haggai. Haggai, I got your back, buddy. You know, I'm with you. I got you. Here's Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is going to address kind of the same thing as Haggai, but from a little bit of a different angle. He knows that some of the rebuilders are questioning you know, they're looking at this, 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 uh, this foundation, right? That's been just laying there for 15 years at this point, by the way. It's just been sitting there. Zerubbabel's still governor. He laid kind of a 
dinky little foundation and then you just let it sit for 15 years and some of the rebuilders are going, is Zerubbabel really the guy to do this project anyhow? You know, isn't that what happens in life when things are, are subpar? Let's find somebody to blame. Zerubbabel, is he really the one that should be doing this? And Zechariah knows that that's kind of the murmuring going on. And so Zechariah speaks to that in his book. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 8. Zechariah is relaying to us a vision that the Lord gave him in the middle of the night. And he says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. True enough, right? His hands will also complete it. So God is saying, don't you even think about changing horses halfway through this race. Zerubbabel started the job. Zerubbabel is going to finish the job. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who dares despise the day of small things, right? It looks to any normal observer like the temple is going to be too small. It's going to be too insignificant. It's going to be too little, too late, right? But God is not a normal observer. God sees what we cannot. He sees what we cannot. Zechariah has this weird turn of the phrase here, the seven eyes of the Lord that are ranging throughout the earth. You guys, we, we just studied Revelation together and we came up against the number seven a number of times and we kind of highlighted the symbolic meaning behind the number seven. The number seven almost always in the Bible refers to something being complete or finished or sufficient on its own. And so the seven eyes of the Lord, is, is Zechariah insinuating that God has seven eyes? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, what do eyes do? They see. And God has seven of them, metaphorically. In other words, God sees everything. God's vision is incomplete. Your vision is, God's vision is complete. Yeah, there it is. God's vision is complete. Your vision is incomplete. The seven eyes of the Lord. God sees what we cannot. Church, if you ever get to a place in your rebuilding efforts where you're feeling discouraged because things don't look like what you expected, here's what I want you to do. This is very simple and I encourage you to do exactly this. I want you to stop and I want you to count your eyes. Would everybody do that right now? Count your eyes. If you come up with a number less than seven, remind yourself in that moment that God sees what you cannot. If you come up with a number less than seven, remind yourself in that moment that God sees what you cannot. And if he's the one that has called you to rebuild, then you need to stop and ask him for a vision for the future. You cannot get it on your own. Who dares despise the day of small things? Zachariah says under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Things that look small to us may not look so small to God. Think about it. The Bible tells the story again and again and again. In the Old Testament, when God's people cried out for a deliverer, God chose Gideon. Despite the fact that Gideon was the runt in a family that was the weakest clan in the entire tribe. God said, that's my boy. 
When God was choosing a hometown for his son, Jesus, he didn't choose Jerusalem. He didn't choose Bethlehem, the city of kings. He chose Nazareth, a place most people couldn't find on a map, a place so obscure and insignificant that literally in biblical days, nobody believed anything important could start there. It was kind of like Westmont. I'm throwing all kinds of shit today. (laughs) Time and time again throughout scripture, God chooses to begin with the underdog. He begins with the weakling, with the runt, with the long shot. God chooses to move in places that you and I would never choose. He chooses to favor people that you and I would never favor. He chooses to bless rebuilding projects that you and I would never even notice because God isn't looking at what's relevant now. God is revealing a vision for the future. And the seven eyes of the Lord, what what did Zechariah say about them? Let me read that line to you again. It's verse 10 of chapter four. He says, the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see, not when you and I see, when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now this sounds like a very obvious construction metaphor, right? The seven eyes of the Lord are going to rejoice when they see, when they see Zerubbabel holding the last stone in the project, the capstone, the final brick in the wall, right? When they see that, God's going to rejoice because Zerubbabel is going to finish. Oh, but there's so much more than that going on. This chosen capstone in the hands of Jerusalem. Psalm 118 verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become there. It says cornerstone. It's the same word. It's the same word. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You might be familiar, that might sound familiar to you because you will remember in the New Testament that verse is referenced as an indicator of Jesus. The one that they rejected has become the most important. Can we hear this? This is not voodoo economics here. Okay, folks, I'm not out on a limb. This this is what the Bible says. Zechariah is prophesying and has Prophecies so often do they have a very immediate literal context, like Jerusalem will lay the last stone. But they also have this far-reaching vision for the future context, where he's saying Jerusalem is holding in his hands the most important stone in this temple. Hold that thought. About six hundred years after Zechariah. The authors of the Gospels would do some research as they were preparing to record the life story of Jesus. And when they did that research, they discovered that Ancestry.com showed that Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, was a direct descendant of Zerubbabel. The eyes of the Lord will rejoice when they see Zerubbabel holding the most important stone in this entire temple. 600 years later, Matthew and Luke go, huh, wow. But Zechariah's words reveal that 600 years before Matthew and Luke figured that out, 
God was already rejoicing because he knew that Jesus' great, 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 great granddaddy was already hard at work. Rebuilding a temple that would one day house the glory of the Son of God incarnate, the chosen capstone. Only God could have known that. Only God could have seen that. And Zechariah is reminding everyone here that God can see the beginning from the end. He can see the end from the beginning. He knows better than anyone what this rebuilding project is all about. He can see it through to completion. And God rejoices in completed projects. That's what God does. He rejoices in completed projects. I know that some of us in this room are going through difficult even discouraging times right now as we consider the rebuilding projects that are in front of us. And maybe we identify sometimes with the rebuilders who take a look at that foundation and just weep because it doesn't match our expectations for the future. If that's you, I believe that God has a word for you this morning. And that word is this, set aside your limited ability to see what is and trust God instead to give you a vision for the future. Don't allow yourself to be chained to memories of what used to be because there is a better future in front of you. Trust the master builder. Keep building. What did Haggai say? Keep working. And as you do so, know that he's already rejoicing over you because he sees it all. And God rejoices in completed projects. I'm going to move to a close here. There's something that I want you to remember, even if you soon forget every detail of what I said today. Right? Even if we throw everything else aside, I want you to remember this one, one thing. And it's this. In God's kingdom... Things are always getting better. In God's kingdom, things are always getting better. That is just a plain truth that the Bible demonstrates over and over. If you want a real fancy word for it, we could say that is a macro narrative of Scripture. It's one of the things that we just see from Genesis to Revelation again and again and again. In God's kingdom, things are always moving forward, always getting better. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. The very beginning of the Bible, God calls Abram, who's childless, you know, doing okay in his business, but childless, where it really mattered in that culture. And he says, Abram, I want you to get up from your home and go to a place I will show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Things are getting better, Abram. The whole Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament because it tells the story of an old covenant, right? It tells the story of an old way of relating human to God. And yet we look to the New Testament, the promise of Christ, and Scripture itself doesn't call it the New Testament. It calls it a better covenant. We had a covenant. But God said, oh, in my kingdom, things are always getting better. So how about we unveil a better covenant? There is a better way, he says. How about Jesus at the Last Supper, right? He's sitting with his disciples and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm kind of leaving you tonight. 
And they're like, no, don't, 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 don't. And what does Jesus say? No. He says, no, it's better for you that I go. How could it be better for us that Jesus would leave? Jesus is like, glad you asked. Let me tell you. Because when I go, God's going to send you the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that. Any one of those disciples that night would give everything they experienced with Jesus to trade spots with you and me. I believe that. Any one of them would give anything they could to trade spots with you and me. Because in God's kingdom, things are always getting better. God sent the Holy Spirit. And that's why in the New Testament, this whole idea that things are always getting better, Paul finally sums it up this way. He says, you know what? No eye has seen and no mind can conceive what God has in store because things just keep getting better. That's the macro narrative of scripture. In God's kingdom, things keep getting better. And so when we're discouraged in life, we all know what it is to be discouraged, right? No shame in that. But when we are discouraged, I think there's really two possible reasons. Either we're looking back into the past, as some of the older generation did when the foundation of the temple was laid, or we're stuck in the present, as some of the younger generation of rebuilders did when they questioned whether or not this was really all it was cracked up to be. Stuck in the past, stuck in the present. In those moments, the challenge before us is to gaze into the future with faith-filled spirit, anointed eyes. What might we see? What might we see if we trust the one whose seven eyes range throughout the earth? Vision for the future, right? Would you close your eyes of flesh for just a moment as we close here? And would you, in the silence of your own heart, ask God to give you a vision for the future? And I want you to take a few moments now to even just think about answering that question. If God answers prayer, well, then what now do you see? What now do you see? Church, I see a congregation emerging from a year of exile ready to take the impactful steps of rebuilding, steps that move forward in a kingdom that is always getting better. I see a church with a renewed commitment to spiritual growth for every member and and to spiritual health for every member. I see lifelong dreams being realized in this place. I see heartfelt prayers being answered in this place. Church, I see a place of healing. I see a place in a community where God-sized miracles of physical, emotional, and mental healing are the norm. I see victory over life-controlling situations. I see piles and piles of broken, rusted out, useless chains. I see a commitment to connect and to love and to serve and to grow together. I do not see church as usual. I do not see the old temple. I do not see what used to be good enough. I see a renewed, rebuilt commitment to serve the Lord and his people. I see 
a whole new church, different in so many regards from HRCC, equipped to reach different people in a different way, in a different community, but with the same good news about the same Savior. As you consider the rebuilding in your life, what do you see? What is God allowing you to see? And what is the vision you have for the future? I want to close in prayer today. Hey, Joe, could you give me a little guitar music under our prayer? Thanks, bud. I want to pray for all of you collectively today. I want to pray that the Lord would give us a vision for the future. And then I'm going to give a dismissal. And the live feed will conclude. But as Joe just continues to give us some soft music, I want to invite you that if you would like to have individual prayer, I'm going to put my mask back on. If you want to come forward when I'm giving the amen and the dismissal, I would love to pray with you about the vision for the future. If there's more of you than there are of me, I'll bet you Pastor Garrett would come up and pray too. As comfortable as you're being, I mean, we haven't used our altars in a year, and that's okay. We're not, I'm not calling everybody forward. But if you'd like to come and have a prayer, we can pray together. I think God is birthing new vision in some of your hearts today. And you know what we need to do? We need to get to work. Just like that guy said. Who would, Zachariah was one who said, who would despise the day of small things? I want us to receive that word today. Father, would you birth in our hearts right now a vision for the future? Would you stir our souls such that we would, would step into this this understanding that it is not business as usual. It's never been business as usual in your kingdom, but there's something about today, Lord, that makes us understand that in a way that's really, really palpable. And so we thank you for the days of the past. Just like the generations of rejoice, we can look back and stand on the testimony of what you have done we have said, Lord, we have never gone without. And we rejoice and we celebrate. But Lord, part of that story is the realization that you are calling us to rebuild. And so I pray that today by your spirit, you would breathe new life into old dreams. I pray that you would breathe strength into tired and weary. I pray, Lord, that you would breathe your vision in the bloodshot eyes. I pray that you would revive your people today. And I pray, Lord, that you would visit with us as often as you would so that we would see what you see. I pray, God, that you would give us a vision for the future. Lord, could we just the words that you gave to Haggai all those thousands of years ago. Could we ask you, God, for those words to be spoken over us? That the glory that you have in mind to fill this place would outshine, outweigh, outmatch anything we've 
never seen before. God, you gave those words to hang out for that temple, but we, your people, ask you today, would you speak them over us? Those are the kinds of rebuilders we want to be. I pray that you would bless each one in your son's name. We say amen. Hey, I know a lot of you are excited to see people and you want to read their shakes to do that in the foyers. Some folks are going to want to come forward and pray. That's okay, so let's just be mindful and respectful of that. We'll see you next Sunday as we worship together.